Welcome to the Hot Stove Society cooking show here at the Hot Stove. Uh, wow, our party motivator is here. Uh, my name is Tom Douglas, and we are happy to join you again this week. Thank you for listening uh, in your bedrooms, in your kitchens, in your wherever you get your podcast. Jackie Most listens. likely not in your bedroom at 9 no. a.m. My wife listens in the bedroom. But what time does she listen to? Oh, she, she listens, listens up in the morning when she wakes up in the morning. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Or at night when she wants to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that would be more like it. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Uh, my name is Tom Douglas, and I am owner of a few joints here around Seattle, uh, including Serious Pie Ballard out there at 52nd and 14th Northwest. And most recently, we have reopened uh, the Lola restaurant here at 4th and Virginia in downtown in the beautiful Hotel Andra, which is home to the hot stoves. You're bringing life back downtown, Mr. Douglas, once again for the second time in your life. For the second time. I, <laughs> I, um, you know, I just have two left. Two lives? Two left uh, <laughs> of restaurants to open, both Palace Kitchen and Cantina Lena. And oh, yeah, so yeah. I'm working on those right now, but I'm also remodeling Seatown right now, which is... It's very exciting. Um, and and I'm Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat, here every week with you, Mr. Douglas, the chef on the go. That's it. I'm sure. a, you know. When can people try out your new place at the airport? Well, I want to make it clear that it's not. I mean, it's I, I my, it. my name can, on, the, on the... When can people try out the place you're consulting on at Lulu. the Lulu. Lulu. Lulu, yes. Uh, give it a week or two, you know, after this crazy week. This weekend is a little bit of a nutty... Uh-huh. Uh, it's kind of like having uh, Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve in the same day in a restaurant kind of situation where it's really busy. But after that, you know, we're going to start updating the menu and everything. It's been, it's been a little bit rocky because of the same pain that everybody has yeah. between employment and um, supply and everything. So it's definitely a rocky time. And, um, but can, can people expect to see you there when they go into this uh, Lulu? I don't know. I've been there every day for the last... So uh, that would be yes. That would be for, yes. For the next I, week. I've seen a few people already. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today, we're going to join, uh, jump into peak of the season duck. Uh, no need to be tentative about cooking duck. There's just a couple of things you need to do. And next thing you know, you have a most delicious fowl in your kitchen. Uh, food in the news. Uh, there's uh, Nestle's uh, coming out with fake chicken wings. Or manipulate, or how, Pamela, I know this, this makes you nuts, uh, this kind it of fake. It makes me crazy. The fake meat that's, instead of yeah. just uh, enjoying the vegetables that I'm going to start are, marching in the street. You're going to march in the street, okay. Yeah. And then uh, you like to put this up against uh, another one, another book, like the, what you consider the right way to go, which is the diet for a small planet. Exactly. So we're going to talk about that a bit. Is there a better butter? If there is, I would say it's probably... I have not found it yet. I'm in search of it, though. I've the only searching. way to really enjoy it, though, is just on a piece of bread. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that we do have, surprisingly, some local, probably surprisingly to some people hearing me say that, but there are some local butter that are super, super delicious. Like Smith's brother, you and I have been using, I know you use it, and I've used it for over 35 years, and they do a great job on their on their butter. I think they're unsalted it's good. butter. It's good, yeah. But I would say, is there a better butter? Yes, there are, there, well, there are some. Save it for the segment. Yes. <laughs> the director is like, yeah. by the way, that was the voice of the director going, stop it. Local now. sake maker Andy uh, Nias is going to be here from Tahoma Fuji. And grain recipes from what Pam calls a stunning new book. And I, I can't call it stunning myself other than visually it is stunning. I haven't cooked a recipe out of it. Have you? 
No, I'm going to okay. start making the rigs that we're going to talk about, though. A new book called Grist, G-R-I-S-T, and it is spectacularly beautiful. And there's a new thing called a rig that I hadn't heard of, uh, R-I-G-S, rigs, and uh, we're going to talk about that. And lastly, uh, finally, back into the groove with Rub With Love Tasty Trivia Challenge. Man, Our we producer get... last week kind of fell off Whew. the wagon. And lots of comments on that one. Yeah, lots uh, could not get her act together to get the... <laughs> The, the, uh, <laughs> the fisherman threw me the, off. The tri- I trivia well, challenge yeah. on the show docket last week. So, Okay, <laughs> Chef Terry, uh, your taste of the week. Taste of the week. Yesterday we were invited to some friends and, you know, wanted to share the pain. You of, have friends? Yes, I do. Okay. I have two, and we met them last night. That is lovely. Um, anyway, wanted to share the pain of making the dinner. So I said, well, you know, I'll make the entree and wanted to make something. Somebody invited you for dinner and you made the entree? Correct. Boy, friends like that. No, no, no. But that was that was like a, that was an, a call that we had. I mean, you know, just like I know you, you, you can talk. I don't ever you would bring... never show up at a house. Pamela, without... when I come to your house for dinner, do I bring the entree? You have. <laughs> <laughs> I know you. Please to admit. <laughs> I know. I know Tom. I mean, I know. That's not true. She cooks it just, all the time. I just anyway. Okay. Bottom line is, my taste of the week is I made a coq au vin, which you know for four, so four legs. You know, two chicken and re- use the rest of the chicken at home for us. But four legs of chicken, you know, some carrots, some celery, some onions, some mushroom, some bacon. Those are the f- basic ingredients of the recipe. Do you find that coco van is better when you know the rooster first? Yeah. No. 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 Okay. All right. Just um, But if you had a rooster, that'd be a great way to get rid of it. We do have a rooster. Because the rooster is that. pretty noisy. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the recipe was invented, I think. But anyway, the idea of, of that is to marinate it for 24 hours in uh, red wine, covered with red wine, all the vegetable and the, and the chicken. So it really, really, uh, you know, and, and a little bit of uh, red wine vinegar that I had, and bay leaf and thyme and garlic clove. The whole thing marinated for 24 hours, then drained, pat it dry, and then took the big Le Creuset pot that I have and um, used a little bit of the fat that I had on the countertop. I always have some fat, and I use, so I use that to start searing... Um, Start searing the, duck, the, the chicken legs, and then I put all my bacon, my mushroom, then I remove those mushrooms and those, that bacon out, then put all the vegetable and the chicken back in, deglaze, put all the red wine marinade back on top, some duck stock, some veal stock, and then cook it slowly for an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm and listening. then some buttered noodle. If you're watching on Facebook, look at his face right now. He is so <laughs> pleased with himself. So happy. He is so, so pleased I'm, with himself. I'm pleased happy. with myself. I am pleased with you, too. It was fork tender, delicious, rich, if, but if, not overdone. And some noodles. We did some... Of course you did. Some noodles with a lot of butter in it mm-hmm. and fresh parsley and salt and pepper and that's it as the base. So are you saying that if anybody here, like we have some nice folks in the audience, right. whoever invites you over for dinner, you'll bring the entree? Well, usually I try to do... I'm not going to your house to make it painful. And, and most people are like, oh, my God. It's like, like, take it easy. This is normal dinner on Tuesday night. You know, it's like, so I bring the, I bring the entree. So oh, okay. they go, okay, well, good. Now you heard it right here. You want to sign up? You want to invite Terry to dinner? Let's do this. Send me the address and I'll show up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't have time for my taste of the week because you explained yours so well. That and I'm I'm starving for it now. And the reason I'm saying this is because this is the time of the year. No, last night was cold and wet, and you know one of those nice dreary November night. Mm-hmm. It was a perfect dish. It was really nice to have that. You know, because I, I had it was I brought it cold in the pot, 
put it on the stove, warm it up gently while we were having champagne, and, you know, then it was perfect. I got it. Good. All right. My taste of the week is persimmon bread. We, we harvested our persimmons from the farm, and Jackie made uh, out of these soupy ripe persimmons that made persimmon bread was delicious. I'll ask you the All recipe because right. I got some puree in my fridge from California. It only works with uh, Prosser persimmons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, up next, don't be afraid of the duck, dang it. Uh, duck is an easy thing to cook. You just have a couple of rules and next thing you know, you're home free on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We are back in the hot stove kitchen here in downtown Seattle. It's a Thanksgiving weekend, and we're thrilled about that. I went to Don and Joe's Meats this morning to get my turkey, possibly for the last time. You know, Donnie's got is he, a butcher is he shop retiring? up for sale, and I want to say that out loud in case anybody wants to run a butcher shop in the Pike Place Market. Oh, um, really? Yeah. So oh, maybe man. that's a retirement thing for you. Yeah, no. <laughs> I never think about the other people being my age. You know, we've been riding this road for 35 years. I go, yeah. why are you retiring? What's well, the matter with you? <laughs> uh, I bought my turkey 36 years in a row from Don and Joe's this year. And my wife had picked it up last night without me knowing it. So I had to buy a filet mignon, like a whole thing of filet, <laughs> and an aged rib roast. Because I... I I just I was mentally ready to have a transaction there. Sure, sure. Which that I happened do. last year too. You <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Tom, it's okay. It's aging is a beautiful thing, Donnie especially is, uh, with the prime rib. <laughs> I would suggest anyone listening right now, if you haven't been to Don and Joe's in a long time, head down there and support him through his uh, last few months of retirement. Like you know, in the restaurant when you announce that you're going to close, you, you sure, 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 you, sure. You, you, Rush. You had a closing sale at your restaurant for like 18 months. <laughs> hey, you know what? You take whatever you can. Exactly. But everyone wants to come once you announce your closing. So same with Donnie. Let's all go buy something from Donnie right. and send him off into retirement in a really nice way. So. Absolutely. You just reminded me. I will go there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyway, ducks. Speaking of Donnie and the, and the Pike Place Market, uh, Don and Joe's Meats, uh, you can buy ducks there, and typically this time of year, he has them thawed already, which right. is sometimes the deterrent when you're buying a duck. Right. Typically, they're four to five pounds. Almost all the frozen ducks are grown in Arkansas, in that area down there in the south. Pekin. P-E-K-I-N, Pekin, or Long Island duck, uh, is what's typically available. My favorite way to uh, cook them is to literally put them on a rack in a roasting pan. I, you know, obviously you pull out the innards and stuff, the neck and all that kind of stuff, and I put in a couple of aromatics, and then I just roast them on high, like 425 for 30 minutes, and then down to 350 for another 30 minutes, and they are cooked. And people are always surprised. So I can't even tell you how to cook a duck, because that's exactly how I would do it. Whoa. I've been cooking duck longer than you've been alive. I know, I know. (laughs) Well, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so... Uh, that's the way I cook. I roast the duck. And from there, uh, now it's a matter of how do you want to serve it, right? So that's just a, like if you're roasting a chicken, that's how you roast a duck, right? right? Okay. Right. Uh, now you've got to decide how you want to serve what you've done. And I always like to then take it off the bone. And right before I serve it, I put it skin side down in a pan and crisp in the skin. And now I have a beautifully crispy skinned duck. And the wonderful gift that a duck gives you is fat. Is fat, right? So it's also what scares people. Right. They, they are so worried about the fat, but the fat is like gold. Right. And when you want to cook potatoes in a, in a week or two or make a potato pancake or green beans with almonds and a little bit of duck fat, um, 
I used duck fat the other day as a little drizzle on top of my minestrone soup, mm-hmm. just like chicken schmaltz oh, or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so many good things that you can do with duck fat. I, I mean, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, finish your gravy with a little duck fat. Or start it. Or, or start it. I mean, start it. Add some yeah, fat to your finish. turkey pan, and then yeah. you have a, a little mm. fat to make your gravy out of. So, But, yeah, so that's how I cook duck. And early, early on, I used to when I used to deliver newspapers... I used to read Mimi Sheraton's reviews of restaurants. And I right. remember early on reading about the Four Seasons in New York. She went there and they hadn't properly trimmed the duck before they sent it out to her table. And, you know, when you take the leg thigh portion off of a duck, there's like a little fat cap right. in there that you have right. to trim out. Right? right. And you render it with all the other stuff. But uh, that wasn't trimmed on her duck. And she just <laughs> went off on them. And, and I know Mimi Sheraton. I know her to this day. Uh, I met her years ago uh, after all of this, but I told her about that story about reading her review, and it made me a better duck chef. Right. And she well, loved it, that story. It is true that there are just a few tricks that you need to learn. And, you know, those famous tricks of the trade that we call it, you know, the, but trimming that little fat makes, you know, obviously a better cook versus a not so better cook, only because if you ever end up with that in your mouth, it is absolutely disgusting. It's not that fun to eat that. Right. So that's why you want to remove it and, you know, look like a hero. Yeah, so when you use duck fat, you use rendered duck fat, Correct. right? It's more like, it's like bacon fat right? in the same way. Okay, so, Terry, in our grocery stores today, unlike right. even 20 years ago, you now see duck parts Correct. that are available. Now, let's say somebody wants some duck legs tonight. Right. Now, confit is a, a process. Correct. An unnecessary process, right? We don't need to preserve no, our duck right. like that anymore. How would you just do roasted duck legs? Just plain, simple uh, roasted duck legs. Would you do it the same way you just described your cocovan, or do you have a different way that you like to do that? I would not do it like that because the thing about duck leg is it's a pretty tough meat. That's the reason confit works really well in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, the confit part is because you're tenderizing the meat and it, it becomes very soft and tender. You know, palatable in, in, in a way where you can just grab yeah, it I guess and I just it. disagree a little bit that they're super tough. Because well, I just cooked them for an hour and they're fine. Yeah. Well, an hour, a chicken leg doesn't take an hour to cook. You just cooked it for over an hour in your coca van. Well, but because I was cooking, I was <laughs> hour and a half. I, I believe you said an hour and a half. Yeah, but if you were cooking a, a, the, the roasting of a chicken slow. legs, how long does it take to roast a chicken leg? 30 minutes. Okay. That's my but if point. I was just roasting, I guess my point is, if I was just roasting a duck leg instead of like the whole five pound duck, right. it wouldn't take any longer. Never mind. So we can agree to disagree. We agree That's to why disagree. we started this show, remember? But we come at life. So what I would do, if I was cooking a duck leg, I would bone it out, actually. I would just take the thigh, take the bone out of the thigh, and I would really go, you know how you do your, your searing after you roast your, your duck? Mm-hmm. I would use the same principle to start. I would just sear the skin side down really high on the on the. On the, in the pan, in the cast iron mm-hmm. pan, and then I would flip it over, probably add some onions, whatever I would have to, to do to the dish, depends on the dish I'm making, and then finish it in the oven, because I think it would really help to sear it on the skin side, number one, to have a better skin, and then number two, it would finish it to cook it in the oven, and I think you'd have the duck leg ready in 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. But it takes a little while to cook a duck leg. It's not quite as tender as one would imagine. Oh. And... Uh, I'm a big fan of the confit mainly because, to me, you know, you cure, your, you cure overnight your duck legs and then you rinse them off and then you cook it very slowly in the duck fat or any kind of fat for that matter. Even oil, if you go, because you're cooking so slowly, then you can actually use vegetable oil or, or even olive oil. Uh-huh. I've done it all of the above. So, 
But the good thing about that is now you have duck legs and you can take them out of that fat. You can individually, you know, wrap them up, put them in the freezer. And whenever you need a, duck, a couple duck legs, you know, you're cooking some beans and then you pull the duck legs out. You have like, you know, the idea of a duck confit and some beans or a duck confit and some butternut squash roasted or whatever. Something that the point is you have the meat ready to go. So you don't have to go through the two days of it. And when you do, buy a pack of legs so you have six or eight legs to cook at once. Because it's a lot easier, and it's also, you know, it's a process. So That's what I was going to say. You, in my mind, if you're going to the grocery store and you want to have dinner tonight, uh, just buy the pre-made duck confit, right. which is available right, now, right? right. right? So, yeah, because unfortunately, that's another thing. Is you never find just duck leg in the store. That is, I have never seen that. It's in my grocery store. Duck hmm? leg, duck breast, all from Maple Leaf Farm out of Arkansas. So, so broken down. Yep. Oh. Yeah, you bet. Well, so it's I just, stand corrected. I have not seen it yet. Uh, it's just, a, like I said, it's a, a rather new phenomenon that I've watched right. duck transition into a more common meat in the marketplace than it was just 20 years ago. So, right. Uh, it's, it's nice. But the key, I think, of any duck, especially in the Peking and Long Island tea, then, uh, duck that you're going to find on the market is to sear, I mean, to roast at a very high heat, to not forget to put a dripping pan to make sure you have a dripping pan under mm-hmm. your duck and not a shallow one, a pretty deep one, just because you don't want that splatter to go anywhere. So you can collect all that fat. Right. But- and remember, raw duck works like raw chicken. Correct. So if you want to make, let's just say you're making a chicken pot sticker, mm-hmm. you can easily make a duck pot sticker with right. the same recipe. Grind it. And, and in some ways, it's a little bit better because it has a little bit more fat to it. You can grind that fat right in with the, right. Du- with the duck meat. So. Super yeah, duck meat is really delicious. underrated in terms of home cooks. I think it's not. Many people are just feel like it's a challenge. But if you've ever cooked a chicken, you definitely can cook a duck. May I do a commercial for Tom's duck class on December 14th? If yes. you love duck like we do, come and join us here. He's going to do duck three ways. I totally December. forgot I was doing that. December 14th. Yeah. Good. I'll, I'll put be it on your Duck calendar. à l'orange. I'll try to make sure I'm here for that. <laughs> duck à l'orange. <laughs> Oh, yeah. um, stop the insanity. Nestle makes fake chickens. It's, is it our responsibility as food professionals to guide people to naturally source food? We're going to talk about that when we come back on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show with Tom and Terry, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the hat shop here on Cairo Radio. It's uh, Terry Rotero and his hatitude. How? Oh, Terry Rotero and Tom Douglas here at the Hot Stove Society Kitchen. Uh, Terry, there's been so much in the last uh, 10 years about uh, impossible burgers and uh, all this kind of fake meat. And before that, it was... Uh, Tofuki. Yeah, all these, kind of, all these kind of things that are made to resemble meat but it's gotten even more literal today right and pamela you were reading about nestle's new project that they invested in uh which is chicken wings which actually have a fake bone fake skin and fake meat all put yes. together to act like a chicken wing what is and it you made? what came is it? in you came in with steam coming out of your ears <laughs> yeah so tell us uh, what do you think i know I mean, uh, if you listen to this show, you know Pamela loves her veggies. She loves her rainbow plate, but you eat plenty of meat too. So it's not Absolutely. like you're a, you're a vegan or something like that, uh, where it's where it's, it, it's insulting to you to even eat the animal at all. But what is it? What's up with you and the whole Impossible Burger that bleeds like a burger, right? Or the these fake chicken wings or things like that? Uh, I'm with you in your camp, but I just want you ex- to explain your your thought. 
I think it exacerbates the problem we have with the American food system and our reliance on processed foods. And that's resulting in a large swath of Americans not eating in a healthy and nutritious way mm -hmm. because they're depending on products in the grocery store uh, that are so far from food when if they actually just bought a chicken and some potatoes and some carrots, <laughs> they would be nourished. But no, I get it, but they're not buying these wings, I don't think. They're buying because they're, they want to eat veg vegetarian. You think they're buying them just because... They're buying it. I mean, we were the first restaurant in Seattle to serve the Impossible Burger. One of them, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and we really got reeled into their spiel about environmental sustainability because of their production methods. But as we... And the people that were eating it, because we uh, premiered it at the Carlisle Room in Brave Horse, uh, it was mostly out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and not so much a food philosophy. And immediately, and, and, I will tell you, immediately it became 50% of our sales. Yeah, but yeah. it wasn't because people necessarily wanted to be vegetarians. Right. They, they were they, just trying it. They were trying it yeah. because it was cool and trendy. Mm -hmm. But then as we worked with the product longer and looked more deeply into the long-as-your-arm list of chemical ingredients <laughs> that it takes to make that product... Uh, I, I started losing my enthusiasm and questioning what we were doing by trying to promote that kind of product. When, in fact, at Brave Horse, for a long time, we had a vegetarian burger made out of mushrooms and black beans that was spectacular. And that was made from It was from sort of spectacular. Food. To me, the issue it with that bleed. was... It, it didn't bleed. Yeah, it didn't bleed, but it also fell apart. It was a little mushy for me to be a real burger. What, so what, now, was, what was your impression of... What's the difference to you from the... The fake burger to the... The impossible black burger bean. to the... Right. Well, it, it holds together much more like a meat patty, uh, the impossible burger does. But I, I'm a, with Pamela on this manipulation thing, right. uh, which I find us endlessly fascinated with, our, our, our scientists and our food companies. I mean, they're looking to make a buck. Right. Nestle and isn't out there trying to be altruistic by making no. chicken wings. No. Uh, they're no, trying no, to no. make a buck. And so they're, they're seeing this opportunity... Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But what I will say is that the Impossible Burger for us, I don't know how it is for, say, a Burger King went all in, right? They have the Impossible Whopper. For us, it went from easily 50% of our sales in the first month wow. to now, like, we serve it at the Carlisle Room still, and we sell one or two a night out of 30 burgers a night. So uh, it, is, it is just not one of those things that... It's settling. It's settling in and... Well, now it's more of a, you're just trying to be convenient to a, a vegetarian or a vegan person, right? Right, so you, right. It, Which is fine, and I, that's why which, we have it. Which, when you, when you really get down to that, it's like, then you don't need to do that. You can just make something more vegetarian. That is my because question. Because it's only, you know, if you, if you have a restaurant, let's say, like the Carlisle, you're, you're basically saying, and probably 25% of your customers are vegan or vegetarian. Not, they, not anymore. Carlisle's not, not in that realm anymore. But in general, let's say, for me, for my, for my experience over the last 35 years in Seattle, the average vegetarian was about 20 to 25% of my business. Really? That's yeah. a lot. Well, would you, I mean, but you I always wrote, embraced it, too. That was good. At Rovers, yeah. we had a five-course vegetarian yeah. since 1987, and, and that was 20% of our know. So I like, guess the question is, you got a place like Cafe Flora, right, which has right. always been, they opened as a vegetable restaurant and uh, are still are. 
So, Pamela, I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't think of any rational reason why you have to have these manipulated foodstuffs. Especially what I don't like about it is that it perpetuates. And they're expensive. It's it's a vegetarian, but it perpetuates meat eating by calling right. them chicken wings. It perpetuates the idea that we need to have meat at every meal. Uh, right. And uh, it's just not the case. Right. I, I was uh, I was fortunate to be at a restaurant in uh, in LA. I don't know if you remember this. I talked about it, Gracia Madre, and it's a very very delicious vegetarian restaurant. But I didn't feel like my food was manipulated. Like there was no foreign object coming to my table. It was all vegetable that were just thoughtfully played with, you know. And, and I think that's where we need to go back to: is you don't need to use those fake whatever. Just use what's available already from Mother Nature and work those items together. You know, work the blending of flavor. Use chefs to, or people who have taste and and creation in that section. I mean, we often, let's be honest, we often manipulate vegetables, right? Or, of course. Or product like that. With we duck often fat. make mushroom duck <laughs> cell or yeah. red pepper puree. Right, right. Or you make an eggplant soup. Right. Uh, or whatever. So we often manipulate vegetables. I don't know that we're saying you have to eat them in their whole form all the time. No, 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 no. That's, I'm not I think saying you're that. talking about more of the chemical additives. Correct. To make it bleed or to have a, a mouthfeel that. People equate to a hamburger or those scenarios. Right. Training our palates to love some of the other flavors and derive satisfaction from a well-roasted mushroom or super you know, crispy potato that gives you the same kind of result that you're looking for when you eat a wonderful piece of flank steak. Mm-hmm. It was like uh, when people started questioning white sugar and white flour, what... What should we do to learn to love whole wheat flour and honey? And it, 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 it involves a conscious effort to try to think about what you're tasting and learn to yeah, which is Yeah, which is the sad world we live in is now we have to think conscientiously and it, and it takes an effort to think about natural things as opposed to it's much easier to eat junk food than it is to eat <laughs> to eat good food. You know, and it's they, harder. They build in that craveability with right. the sugar and salt, so you keep buying it and you keep eating it. I love a good Cheeto now and then. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Those are chemicals. I will say, though, uh, one of the things, we got, we got off on this whole Nestle investment in this fake wing, but it is only a $4 million investment. It's not like... <laughs> billions of dollars that people Not threw, yet. In, threw into Impossible Burgers. And, the four million okay, so let's go to the other end of this, which is the book that you love called uh, Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore Lap, Lapay? Lapay. Lapay. Uh, <clears throat> it's 50 years published now. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Tell us what wow. you like about this book. Well, it, it came out... Ooh, no, I can't say this. <laughs> it came out when you were... It came out in 1979. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, it it was my philosophical tome when I was a, a protesting hippie in Boston. It was the first widely published book that talked about uh, pivoting to a plant-based diet for environmental and nutrition and health reasons. And she has ha, has been sustaining in her message and that they're republishing it again 50 years later with new recipes and updates I just think is remarkable Mm -hmm. and she points out all of the reasons uh, that we should stay away from the heavily processed food so I want everybody to buy a copy but she's also uh, 
into the whole thought of, of food deserts and elitist, yes. elitist eating, which is $12 green smoothies. And, you it know, frustrates her like crazy. Yeah, so she wants it for all people and wants it as a system. I mean, she's not, obviously, she's not dictating, but she's putting out her opinion in her book that we would all be better off as right. a planet if right. we were to follow some of these thoughts. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that is for real that, you know, we need to make food more equal for everybody, for sure. Especially the access to it. Because I think it is true that even in places like Seattle, I mean, we have some of the best stores in, probably in, on, on the planet so in terms of quality and standard. But then you go two miles away and there is not a store to be found. You know, there's, and there is nothing but junk food, you know, or whatever. And it's like nobody should be buying their food in a gas station. That's my philosophy. Is that your feeling? Yeah, that's my feeling, yeah. What about a restaurant that's in an old gas station? No, that's different. That's different. Okay. That's different. Can we close with a quote from her? Sure. Miss um, LePay is troubled by the way healthy eating has become an elitist activity. Uh, speaking of the green smoothies that you did, that's not what I'm all about. She's also ambivalent about plant-based meats made in the lab. While they contribute less to climate change, they are not a solution to fixing our broken food system, she said, because it keeps processed foods as our staple. The answer is healthy foods that come directly from the earth are as close as possible. And, and, and remember, wine it comes from the earth. earth that's why. <laughs> it's an important part of the diet. And after all this, our next segment will all be about butter. Yeah. <laughs> What do you, natural what do you do with those veggies you get from the earth and slather them in butter? On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Couldn't do it without the butter. Here you go. Everything's better with butter. I think our pal Julia Child said that once. Where's butter? It's always better. Okay, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, this is Tom Douglas. And... and- I'm joined by uh, Julia. I'm joined by a cheap imitation of Julia Childs. We are uh, working hard here at the Hot Stove Society. We're on Facebook Live. If you ever want to join us uh, in the morning, on typically it's Friday mornings. Although the holiday schedule, we'll put out some notices what the holiday schedule when we're taping is going to be. So, uh, but uh, if you ever want to um, look in, Facebook Live is uh, our venue, right? Yeah, it's fun. Let's talk butter for a second. Yep. Uh, when I was at the grocery store the other day, I happened to be at Shoreline Central Market. Uh-huh. And they have all the typical butters, right. like the ones that we use in our right. restaurants. Uh, we use what's the, a local packer named Meadow Sweet. I'm right. not sure who they get their butter from, uh, whether it's Dairy Gold or, you know, wherever they might get it. They repack it into one-pound prints. They make little butter pats, and they uh, sell sometimes the big 50-pound blocks of butter. I would call it industrial butter, that kind of Correct. butter. If you look at the grocery store, you see Dairy Gold, Tillamook, Challenge, all, all those kind of industrial butters. Correct. Even Lando Lakes. Right. Right. Now you're starting to see so much more specialized butter right. in the marketplace. And people are confused, a little bit like they are in the olive oil aisle. When do I spend twice as much for a pound of butter? You know, when is it actually worth it? And which butters are worth it? Correct. So uh, I guess the question is, and I think this is why Pamela put this in, in the uh, docket here today, it's probably too late for your Thanksgiving, but as you go through your holiday baking and stuff, is there a better butter to use for holiday baking? And so I guess I'll just ask, Terry, you, do you ever experiment? 
Yes. With all the butters out there. I've, so I've tried them all, I guarantee you, raw yeah. and cooking. Because you can buy French butters from Normandy yeah. now. You can buy Amish butters from Pennsylvania. Irish, butter, Irish butters from Kerrygold. Plus Gras, which is the biggest name we have in the States, I think, of supposed to be the number one standard of the richest butter we have on the... It's the richest, but right. is it the best flavor, right? So no, no, I said the richest. Has, I understand. So a rich butter has a higher butter fat content. Correct. Right? And uh, it also feels different on the palate when you eat it, which mm-hmm. is, I think, I think that's where the, the beginning of the story goes. What are you going to do with your butter? Are you going to be cooking, uh, sauteing mushroom, or are you going to be putting it raw onto a nice, beautiful grain bread that you just, Toasted, an, artis- yeah. an artisan just made? So those are the, to me, this is where the difference comes in in butter much more is when you're going to eat it raw on a piece of bread, toasted, whatever, or when you're going to be cooking. Those are the two different things. So when it's time to eat butter raw, I want good tasting butter. And what is a good tasting butter? I think it's just like anything else in life. Train yourself. Don't always buy the same thing. I know you're very easily familiarized with when you're walking through the grocery store, you go Land of Lake, whatever, you used to do the same thing, right? Change it up a little bit. You know, try different things. And butter freezes really well. So if you buy a little bit, you know, a pound of plus gras, it's pretty expensive to buy versus, you know, a pound of something else, right? Take the butter, the, the pound of butter. When I get home, the first thing I do is I take the butter, I cut it in four different sticks, rewrap the sticks, and put them in the freezer. So like this, I've got three sticks in the freezer, one in the fridge. I'm not taking the whole pond and go, I have to go through this butter. So that's number one. And then, you know, just try different, different butters. And the justification of prices will come with your palate. And you're going to be surprised. And some butter are expensive and you can't justify to your own palate that it's that great. And you're also going to go the other way around. Some of them are going to be expensive. And you go, man, this is a good butter. I mean, I think... Most people who like butter, when they try plus gras, I'm going to use that as an example, it's definitely a, a different butter than some other butter on the market. You know, when you put it on a slice of bread, you definitely have different butter. But in are you hand. getting a better butter flavor or a better richness? I think That's it's a rich, thing. I think it's a... Because to it, me, I like baking with plus gras. I like baking right. with the higher fat content Correct. butter because it adds moisture, it adds right. fat, right? So when you make a chocolate chip cookie with plus gras compared to a, a industrial butter, right. it's just going to come out more succulent Correct. because it's got a higher fat content. Yeah. It's the a mouthfeel. It huh? gives you a different mouthfeel. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing I would say, and if you've listened to our show for over the years, we do a lot of cuttings, right? right. right. We haven't done them as much with Pam lately because I don't think she was around when we used to do those more on a weekly basis. But we'll take, a, uh, we'll take all the butters in the marketplace from a store, and take the seven or eight butters, and we'll cut them next to each other right. and make a choice. Right. Now, if you're out there holiday baking, you're going to easily use seven or eight pounds of butter in the yeah. next week or two. Right. They'll be fine in the fridge. You just make your choice, and, but you try them all, and then, right. you, then you combine them, and then you've got butter for your baking. Right. But it's an interesting way for not much money to really start to know what you want to have in your fridge moving yeah. forward. I mean, the holiday, you know, like I said, you make sticks. You take a few pads of the sticks. You put them on a tray. Let's say you're offering cheese or... Yeah, I'm a big fan of butter and cheese together just because <laughs> just because you don't get a profile like this by just looking at it. So you have to eat it. So, right. you know, butter and cheese is a good combination. But this is a perfect time when your friends are coming over for poo-poos or whatever. You just offer a different kind of, different kind of butter. Yeah. You know, different pads on the, on the, on the tray. 
The other thing I will say, though, if, if you're comparing salted butter next to unsalted butter, it's not a fair fight. No. Salted butter always wins. <laughs> because it, it perks, the, you know, that fat gets on your palate and dulls it, and the salt just blows it right up. But I'm a big fan of unsalted butter with my own salt with your on own top salt, of it. Especially crunchy, <laughs> crunchy salts. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's a, nice, it's a nice, beautiful touch, I think, to, you know, and... and Again, you don't have to have a lot, and it's not because you buy two pounds of butter, then you're going to eat two pounds of butter in one meal. And butter is a natural process, I mean, a natural product that your body will get rid of if you just have to move your butt a little bit, you know, just move around a little bit, and it's an easy one. It's not, you know, you're not talking Crisco that's going to stay on your hips for the rest of your life. It's, you know. I've been buying Kerrygold lately because when I, when I uh, drive through the hills of Scotland and Ireland... Uh, on my golf trips, you see those cows. I just like the way the, the <laughs> animals are kept in a different way than that we keep them over in eastern Washington it's on dirt lots. They're yep. up in the green hills, and I like that a lot. So, when we come back, we're going to talk a little sake uh, right here on the Hot Stove Society Show, Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. It's time for hour number two of the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo here at the Hotel Andra, right in downtown Seattle. This is the Hot Stove Society kitchen where you can take classes. As we mentioned earlier, Chef, I've got a duck class coming up on the 14th of December. All things duck all the time. Lots of shooting. And duck is one of those things. People are scared of it. It's funny. Yeah. For goose, I can understand being scared of it because it's a big, it's a, you know, 10, 11 pounds and... Uh, it's there's a lot going on there that right. but with duck five four or five pounder they're simple so uh this hour we've got much more to come uh we're going to uh, of course uh, finish the day with our food for thought tasty trivia challenge brought to you by rub with love uh, we have a new cookbook called grist uh, which was recommended by lara hamilton over at the book larder in fremont uh, she is our go-to when it comes to the hot new books in the marketplace and Grist, uh, written by Abra Barons, as Pam's holiday gift selection. How about that? That's a, that's a good one. But unfortunately, they're not signed, Pamela, so that's a problem. Also, uh, we're going to talk sake. We don't talk a lot about sake, and uh, it's one of those uh, items that I tend to have when I have sushi. I don't tend to have it other times. It's Correct. not like my go-to wine or beer. Um, so... Uh, we I actually probably... have a bottle in my fridge. And I do too, but that's but where I it don't, stays sometimes. But I don't drink it regularly, sadly enough. We're going to welcome Andy Nyans uh, at Tahoma Fuji uh, to explore sake in all of its uh, glory. Thank you for coming and joining our show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Andy, tell us about your company, what you're doing, uh, the things that you've brought for us to taste and look at. Sure. Uh, and how sake is made. Just just take over the show, Andy. Okay, wonderful. Uh, so my name is Andy Nyans. Uh, I live over in Ballard with my small family. And uh, many years ago, we built a little sake brewery in the backyard of my home. So, Wait, so I'm sorry. Let's start from the beginning. Why uh, a sake brewery? I mean, that would not come to my mind to do that in my backyard. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my wife is from Japan. Okay. She's from a lovely little place called Toyama. It's all the way west of Tokyo, so on the, the inland seaside, and I was living there with her, and eventually, after we got married, uh, I was able to freely look for work, and I got a job in a sake brewery. 
In Japan. In Japan, in, Japan. in her hometown. It was a very small business. It was uh, about five of us doing all of the work. So, in retrospect, it was a kind of a perfect situation to learn, where a lot of breweries, I might have been segregated to doing one task for one year and another task for another year. Right. This place, I got to do all of it and have absolute contact with everybody within the business and learn the philosophy of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So, it was kind of a magical experience. The brewmaster, the toji, he and I had a, a plan to make me capable and able to run a brewery on my own and then unfortunately they couldn't financially support him so he left and at that point we kind of returned back to seattle where i grew up so yeah at that point there wasn't a lot of uh expansion within the microbrewing industry uh there is i think two breweries in ballard hales and maritime mm-hmm. so i worked at maritime for a little while so basically we we returned to seattle um i worked at maritime uh, Pacific, uh-huh. which was a great little brewery in Ballard, mm-hmm. and uh, learned a lot there. And then I went to work on at Georgetown for a while. And those experiences allowed me to stay in touch with yeast, stay in touch with uh, sanitation practices, and learn how to move large volumes of liquid from one place to another. And then uh, eventually... Pneumatic pumps are an amazing thing. Yeah, yeah, they really, <laughs> they really are. Vacuum pumps, too. Yeah, they're all, there's all kinds of beauty in gravity and, and pumps. Um, unfortunately, my little place, I do it mostly by hand, so I'm working towards it. You said it a few times, but I don't know that people recognize or realize that sake is a brew product, like Absolutely. beer, and not a wine product, which is how it's typically sold, I would say. I think people think of buying sake when they're thinking about buying wine. Well, it's uh, interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm registered with the federal government as a beer brewery and with the state as a winery. I see. So, <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, you talk about confusion. Natural confusion. Yeah, yeah, just the base right there. So, yeah, a lot of people think it's distilled, which it's not, absolutely. Sake is, I don't want to say it's the most complex brewing because basically all of Asian uh, fermentation, when it involves alcohol, is, is essentially the same microbiological process that sake goes through. So to say it's the only one that does it is not correct, but... The way that sake is made is definitely the highest expression of how you treat the ingredients and how you can come out with this amazing end product. Mm -hmm. So I I would think that the number one priority is to find the right rice? Uh, Or is it? Some people think rice. Some people think water. Uh But really it's knowledge. If you don't have the, the understanding of how to work your ingredients, then you could have the best of everything and make absolutely nothing. Sounds like cooking. It, yeah, yeah. So, so if you want, we can break down the the uh, kind of the process real quick. Right. Um, so we actually West- have two minutes, and then we'll just carry you over to the next. Sure. Segment. Yeah. Sure. So Western culture came up with malting grains, mm-hmm. right? The malting releases the starch into sugars from enzymatic activity. Uh, Eastern culture figured out how to do this with inoculating a mold spore onto various substrates, typically soybeans, uh, rice, a few others. Western culture now is taking this ingredient, Japanese call it koji. It's obviously got other names in other cultures. Uh, But this inoculate, you can do various things with it with this enzyme activity, Mm -hmm. um, which we can talk about leading into the next segment there. But essentially, if you don't know how to work that, then you can't make sake at all. So the the understanding of how to 
uh, grow this ingredient, how to treat it correctly, how to get the correct enzymes that you want for your particular sake is, I would say, the utmost importance. Well, that's the flavor profile by getting the ones that you want. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. The other major factor, I mean, obviously the rice and the water are base ingredients, so they're huge parts of it. But the other factor is your yeast and how you treat your yeast. Right, um, all the fruitiness that you're going to get out of a sake—that's all esters that are created by the yeast itself, not necessarily from the rice. It's influenced by the rice, it's influenced by the water, but it's not it. My favorite thing uh, for people that have never used kochi before—you can buy it at Wajamaya mm-hmm. uh, in a little plastic container—and I buy the soybeans right next to it, and I make my own miso. Uh-huh. You inoculate the soybeans with the koji rice, and that's yep. how you kind of get started. And so it's a simple process. You buy a little—I you know, have a little ceramic vat that i keep it in and age it for a year on my kitchen counter and it just smells so beautiful yeah but it's uh, beautiful that's just a simple way to kind of get started with koji and understanding it a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, when we come back let's take it to the next step uh the kind of rice you use how it's uh i I almost want to call it bird down but it's ground down into a smaller Mm -hmm. size and then um, all the different processes and the different flavors sounds great we're talking to andy nines of uh, Tahoma Fuji Sake Company on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We are back. We're exploring sake right here and now here at the Hot Stove Society Kitchen. Chef in the Chapeau, so happy to see your face again this week. So happy to be here, Tom, and actually very, very excited to listen to, to our guests telling us about sake process making because yes. that is not something I'm very familiar with and, and I enjoy sake but not familiar with exactly what the nuances are of greatness versus not so greatness in sake and I know there is a for me if the sake I've tried all my life there's been a huge huge spectrum you know mm-hmm. from very watery not too strong not too flavorful to very uh, rich luscious in the mouth and cold and Hot and, you know, I mean, so it's very interesting. It's a very interesting beverage to me. Wonderful. So our guest is Andy Nyans. He's from Tahoma Fuji uh, Sake Company in uh, Ballard, right? In the brewery district of Ballard. Well, more in the uh, elementary school district. I live, I live about a block away from my kids' elementary school. And it's, uh, again, it's located in my backyard. So it's uh, not, not exactly in the brewing district. But, uh, yeah, about 10 minutes from there. 10 minutes from there. Yeah, so. Okay, so we got as far as we know... Um, Essentially, your background, coming, uh, having learned the process uh, when you were living in Japan. Let's go with now. Let's just make a bottle of sake. Tell, sure. us, how, tell us how it works and yeah, so, why it's such a hands-on process. Absolutely. So, so as, uh, as we were saying, the rice is the base ingredient. So my rice comes from California, from the Sacramento Valley. Uh, I use a Calrose rice. Um, Calrose is considered a table rice, but it's also got a very nice lineage in the sake rice. Uh, lineages as well. The most famous and well-used uh, sake rice is called Yamada Nishiki, and that rice and Kalros have a similar uh, or have a common relative, I believe a, a grandparent of some type. <laughs> so, so it is a nice rice. It's um, a bit harder than your typical sake rice, so my soaking times are a bit longer. And uh, essentially what happens is the rice is grown, uh, after it's grown, it has a, a stalk or a sheath on it that needs to be removed. So it goes through a basic milling process, which any rice that you're going to buy at the store is going to go through. Uh, most rice is milled to, uh, I think, the 90% mark, 92%. 
Um, my rice is milled down to 60% of yeah, the original really weight. small, yeah. Yeah, it's very small. And for the really, truly fine, high-grade sakes, you'll see rice that's milled down to 25 to 30% of its original size. Uh, so that's just because they want the heart of the grain? Yeah, yeah. So a typical sake rice or a, a high-quality sake rice is going to have a starchy center. And again, we're looking to convert that starch to sugar and then have the yeast consume that and turn it into alcohol. Right. Uh, so by milling away the outer portions of this rice, we're removing things that we don't necessarily want. Lipids, fats, proteins, kind of getting rid of these things that, that aren't necessary. Um, and then by having that remaining starchy center, you can theoretically get a better sake out of it. When you say theoretically, you don't seem so convinced. Well, it's definitely a huge part of it. And if you have great rice and great ingredients going in and you know how to go through your process, again, that's, that's really the key ingredient right. is going through that process. So, so, so when do you inoculate the rice? So it's sort of a long, drawn-out process, mm -hmm. and we'll go through it quickly. Um, yeah, you're going to have to be pretty yeah, quick. So, yeah, so making koji, I, it takes about three days to make. So it's made in a warm room. I inoculate it. The koji spore kind of works its way into the rice. I keep it warm on its, uh, maintain it for about a day, and then after that day, it will start to accelerate and create its own heat as it starts to grow. So then I'm more in a maintenance stage, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's where I'm trying to get all these enzymes that will make the starch to sugar conversion. Uh, after that, I'll st I'll make a starter batch, so then it becomes sort of like a sourdough. Uh, the type of starter batch that you make has a big impact on the overall uh, style and flavor of the sake. Uh, to be quick about it, I make a style which is kind of the general style of sake making these days. Um, it started in 1917 or something like that, 19, early 1900s, this style was developed. And essentially it's adding lactic acid to your starter batch to create a safe environment for the yeast. Um, so that goes about a week, and then there's a build-up stage, and this is slightly unique to sake, where you're essentially doubling your ingredients of koji rice, white rice, and water uh, three times over a four-day period. And at the end of that, that's your full batch, and then that ferments for a month. So, wow. And you the, have to stir it every day? Uh, you know, there's debate about that. Yeah. I don't necessarily stir every day. Um, it is good to stir at some points, uh, but at other points you're essentially just inducing oxygen into the batch. So. Mm. You know, there's debate so, about so it. So then what happens? You end up uh, just heating it, boiling it? Uh, no. So I have a, a large sink uh -huh. that uh, used to be used for developing photographs back in the day. <laughs> and I turn that into a press, and I press my sake out with some pressing bags that I made. Uh -huh. And then at the end of that, I let it sit and settle in a tank. And then I'll rack that off into the bottles, and essentially that's it. I don't so pasteurize. No, I don't pasteurize my sake. Okay. Although typically most sake is at least once, typically twice pasteurized. Right. Um, and you, you want to explain why they pasteurize them? Yeah, so Japanese figured out pasteurization over 100 years before Louis Pasteur was born. So they've been doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and they discovered that if you pasteurize, it helps it get through the summer heat. Um, They're also pasteurizing soy sauce and working with the Maillard reaction long, long ago um, to develop the flavors in the soy sauce, to richen it, to thicken it. So their, yeah, just their understanding of things and their usage and development of techniques that were around, but how they refined and, and developed was really phenomenal. They also helped yeah. keep the product clean and 
you know, no, no. Um, yeah, for sure. Summers in Japan are brutally hot and humid. Right. So the fact that uh, typical sake has been aged for six months is a direct result of that ancient custom of having to age it during the summer. So they would cellar it and just not touch it so that it wouldn't right. get spoiled. And yeah, at some point people figured out that if you heat it up and cool it down, it helps to protect it even more. Right. So, yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, pasteurization is not necessarily bad. No. <laughs> Especially if you want to keep something for a while. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad at all. Right. It stops also fermentation, which is, which is maybe good. Depends on the product you're using, but... Well, it definitely helps to hold the flavors where they are. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, but it also so, takes away some flavors when you pasteurize. Correct, correct. Yeah. You, uh, you've poured us some sake. What am yes. I smelling? How do, what's a good way to taste it? We have two minutes. Now, where did my cup what's go? What's a good way to taste it? Um, so a good way to taste it is just like a wine. You want to get it in into your nasal, uh, around to the roof of your mouth, breathe it up into your nasal passage, um, explore the flavors in there. Um, Take a deep breath. A deep breath, yes. Chew it, gargle it, whatever you like to to say. Uh, My sake is unpasteurized, so it has to be kept cold. And most sake likes to be kept cold. So I always recommend people to keep the bottles cold. Start off by drinking it cold. And then leave the bottle out and let it warm up or pour some off. And let it warm up to room temperature and then drink it again and explore those flavor differences. And then you can take that same carafe and heat it up uh, in a little warm water and get it up you know, into the 90, 100 degree range, 130 degree range, explore these temperatures and have fun with it and drink it and see what you like. Mm-hmm. Because that's the best way to figure out, you know, what a sake can be. Just because one person says you should drink it this way doesn't necessarily mean that's the only right. way so you should drink it. So you're not a sake snob. That, uh, uh, a, I, lot of, a lot of stock, sake snobs say never drink it hot. Yeah, that's just a misnomer. That's okay. not correct. If, right. you go, if you go spend time in a brewery, and when you're eating dinner and it's a cold January night, you're going to be drinking warm sake that you made at that brewery that right. somebody is going to be drinking cold. Same concept and with it's, wines. it's delicious. People tell you white wine should only be super cold. and It's like, no. Yeah. You can have white wine cold or you can have white wine, you know, room temp. And it's fun to explore the, the difference between those temperatures with the same wine or the right. same sake. Yeah. The yeah. floral definitely will come out. The nose will definitely change as you warm up anything. Yeah. You can experience with uh, Bud Light as well. It's not quite as pleasant. <laughs> but, you know, when it Just warms up, it, it definitely changes flavors. Okay. Where can people so, find your product? Uh, I'm available. Beast and Cleaver shirt. Yes, indeed. I, I'm available at uh, about half of the PCC markets, all the ones within the city and then some of the outliers. Uh, places like Beast and Cleaver, Seattle Fish Guys, um, Sake Nomi, Hanyato, Kamonegi. I used to be available at a lot more restaurants when they existed, and right. we're working our way back into it. Right. But uh, yeah, right now a lot of specialty stores, uh, places like that. But please feel free to visit the website or get a hold of me, and I'm always happy to answer more questions. Cool. All right, that's Andy Nyans from Tahoma, T A H O M A, Tahoma Fuji Sake Company. Uh, check out his products. Uh, they are delicious. As a matter of fact, sitting here. Super delicious. Over and over again. And local. Thank now, you very up much. Next, uh, we're going to talk about a new cookbook called Grist. G-R-I-S-T. Grist. And it's got Pamela excited. And, God, the pictures are incredible. Uh, when we come back on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. All right, we're back in the hot stove kitchen on Cairo. That was so fun drinking some of that sake from Andy. Good morning. Uh, Good let's way to talk start about the this book you brought, Pam. Uh, books are a little bit out of fashion, except for books that kind of have a 
um, cookbooks, I'm saying, not books, but the cookbooks that have a storyline through them that right. typically are the ones that are selling where it's more of an experience of a life of cooking and things of that nature. Now, this book is more of a typical cookbook that you've brought in today. It's called Grist, G-R-I-S-T, A Practical Guide to Cooking Grains, Beans, Seeds, and Legumes. And if somebody were to listen to our show since you took over as producer, <laughs> uh, they would think maybe that we have a very heavy vegetarian <laughs> bent. And it's not true, really. No. But we do love them, right? And we do love to explore all parts of our diet. And I like books like this that really get into it. You know, yes. And, and both uh, stimulating both in the, the recipes of themselves, but also the photography is fantastic. And it really gives you a sense. Like when you're making risotto, there was one, one picture in there with like eight different spoons of risotto. So from a texture perspective, as a new cook, it really lets you know uh, where you should end up after you're done following this recipe. And I love books that really let you feel that in a great way. And, and to let you decide your own direction and customization of a recipe, that's what I love about the way she structured the book, is starting with the base grains and then suggesting different sauces or pairings. And so for every grain, she's got a chart of try it with this, try it with that. Because uh-huh. um, in the introduction, Abra says... Uh, we all bought a lot of grains and legumes during the pandemic, and they're kind of sitting on our shelves. We know we're supposed to be eating them, but it feels like a bit of drudgery to have to go through all your dried beans. Mm-hmm. So her inspiration for really sassing them up is what drew me to the book and why Laura at Book Larder recommended it, because uh-huh. uh, she knows we're trying to be good about our vegetables. Yeah, Opera Barons uh, is the name of the author. Uh, Grist is the name of the book, and uh, some of the areas that I'm trying to be better at, and frankly, it's coming pretty easy because uh, Jackie keeps bringing home these beans. You know, at the farm, uh, she grows all these beans, then picks them all and lets them dry in their shell, in their casings, in the pods, and then while they're watching the football game or The Voice or something uh, in the evening time, they'll just sit there, she and Sharon, my mother-in-law, We'll sit there and just shuck beans all perfect, evening long. Perfect. And it's just like this little it's funny thing that when, they do. When I was a kid, it was the things you did at night around the fireplace. Yeah, and I, I've talked to some Vietnamese people where they make spring rolls at night while they're right. having local right, family right. chats. And, I mean, we all have, dumplings is a great thing to make while you're sitting around chatting. Right. Uh, so, but, but I've been trying to get into these homegrown beans that we've been having. Because I've never been a bean person. No, I know you haven't. But you've changed in the last couple of years. You've moved. You've moved. You know what I even like now are the Mexican refried beans. <laughs> oh, I haven't gotten there yet. You haven't got there yet. <laughs> oh. That pasty, I think, with good, good, uh, flavorful rice, and a nice squeeze of lime, and some of that tajin. You know that they have that uh, little spice mix called T A J I N. You see in all the grocery stores, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's just literally chili and lime salt, basically. Matter of fact, our new taco rub is this. Uh, I stole the idea of my new taco <laughs> rub from the tahine brightness, right? So my new taco from rub the is lime, the, huh? From the lime, from the lime, and I also have four or five different chilies in it now, ground chilies, to kind of you know the tahine is one dimensional for me, and I like that little boldness of a bunch of different chili flavors: uh, guajillo, ancho, the paprika chili that's been smoked, things like that. You know, a little. Um, um, What's the one I want? Uh, the little smoky one. And chipotle. Chipotle. Oh, chipotle. chipotle. Yeah. Anyway, going back to this book, uh, I, let's talk about your favorite recipes. 
because I see uh, I got one of my notes about a rig, R I G. Uh, a rig. And you hadn't heard of that never term heard of before? A rig had before. you, Terry? I had never heard of it. I don't it. even know. I, I know it's a truck, but I don't know People if it's say anything else. I look else. like a semi truck rig <laughs> yeah, all the time because I'm so big. But, but um, Abra talks about chunky vegetables with a distinctive marinade on it. So it's one of her solutions to brightening up and making the legumes more inviting. Right. Um, so could you read some of the suggestions? She had an olive rig, a hazelnut rig. Well, she calls them herb relishes and, and flavorful rigs. So that gives you a kind of a context of what a rig is. So in her olive rig, she's got pitted olives, uh, calabata green or mixed, three anchovy fillets. So it's a little bit like an umami kind of right. generation of because olives are salty, the anchovy flays are salty but earthy, olive oil, a shallot, some garlic, some capers. So now you've added a pickle element, some orange, lemon, rosemary leaves, and chili flakes. So if you think about it, Terry, as like a rasa it's almost, hanout. It's almost, like, some, a, almost like, like a tapenade. Almost you. like yeah, a duca, or a, right. but it's a version of a spice mix, right? sort of. But I like the base of olives to start. It's nice. Well, I mean, a rig can, it, she has all kinds of... So here's a Ross Hollenut apricot almond rig. That's the one I'm going to make next. So it's almonds roughly chopped, dried apricots, thinly sliced, olive oil, a teaspoon of Ross Hollenut, uh, which is... Which I can't even whole, tell you what's Ross in Hollenut is the uh, Moroccan home spice. So every household so like has a, curry, a mixed... a Moroccan curry it's a, Exactly. It's a mixture of spices, and they all have... And usually... The base of it is coriander, um, you know, coriander is common, cumin is common, and a little maybe ginger or something like this, grated uh-huh. you know, powder. Those are the basis of, you know, starting with for raselanut. So. so if you've ever made like a heavy roast, like a pot roast or an osobuco or something like that where you use the gremolata on top that has chopped horseradish and parsley, sometimes garlic, sometimes a little chili flake. Right. Uh, it's the same idea, of Correct. Rig, but I've just never heard it termed that way before. Well, it's a good it's a good name for it because you definitely are rigging something. <laughs> well, I think it it gets to the point that you made Tom about where to bring in the umami characteristic to make the meal satisfying for those of us that have become accustomed to that as right. being the main flavor profile of your dinner. Right. You want something that says, "Oh yeah, now I've had something, you know, rich and salty and and but again, you have it on your chickpeas. Right. I, th- I also think that a lot of people think of grain as a, you know, probably third product of their dinner, you know. So to embellish it, it is very important. And it's very, to know a little trick to make it even better is probably very important, you know. I mean, so I love, it deserves I love, to be in the center of the plate. Right. Well, I, love, I, think it's, I love farro. I love grains like that. And But many people look at it, oh, you know, I don't know if I want to eat that, you know. It's like. Yeah, just, you know, you can embellish it so quickly. Well, see, that's the thing, Terry, that's so important, I think, is that you talk about beans or grains, and they come off as heavy, they're long-cooked, blah, blah, blah. You really have to bring them back, right, right. After, you, after you cook them, whether it's right. lentils or black beans or whatever. Bring them back with fresh dandelion greens. Correct. Arugula, shavings of salty pecorino, uh, the, a rig of, of uh, garlic and shallot and f- fresh herbs. Rub with love, mushroom powder. Oh, that's even that's probably even a little too heavy for something like that. Oh. But but the point being is you you want to cook these nice legumes, and then you want to bring them back to fresh. And right. it's no different than 
uh, cooking a soup that you put herbs and garlic in, right? At, at the beginning. And the squeeze and of at lemon the end, at the end. Right before you serve it, you refresh those herbs. Correct. You refresh the garlic. Right. Uh, and you uh, now have a much brighter soup than a cooked down soup. So. Yeah. This final touch are very important. And it's, it's just basically one layer up. You just suddenly went from ground floor to... You know what I wish people would do? Uh, I, again, I went to a restaurant last night where I, I was ready for some vegetables, so I ordered the Brussels sprouts. I am so sick of restaurants, like, taking the easy road out and just dropping Brussels sprouts in a deep fryer and then sending them out like there's some greasy, yeah. big, fat, yeah. fried food rather than a delicious, healthy Brussels, Brussels yeah. sprout. I'm not going to tell you the restaurant I've, I was in. <laughs> but I'm but sick of it. How would you could, do it to keep it I fresh? Had some, I had some Brussels sprouts the other day in a restaurant as well, huh? but they were... Perfect. They were that beautiful duck roasted. They were roasted. They were uh-huh. not fried. And, and they how came, did they bring them back for you? Were they lemon juice? They or just did like a, a quick uh, toss in. You could tell like a little bit of olive oil and lemon and, you know, just a quick, yeah. nice finish, not too strong. But the Brussels sprout was definitely the king. And the fact that it was roasted perfectly. And I'll tell you where it was. It was at Eden Hills. Okay, good. Very nice. Uh, Grist is the name of the book. G-R-I-S-T. Abra Bren- uh, Behrens is the author. Uh, go check it out. I think that's a really... Book larder. Um, really, yeah, the book larder in Fremont. It's a really interesting book. Okay, finishing up the show here. One more segment. It's the Rub With Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge when you come back. Welcome back. It's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs. They're handcrafted in my own warehouse uh, in Ballard. Uh, they're sauces, mustards, uh, rubs. They add a flavorful kick and a whole lot of love to just about any meat, fish, or vegetable. We got our new jerk rub out, which is a, uh, a, comp- a partnership, partnership with Trey Lamont from the Jerk Shack. It is so good. You got to try mm. it, Terry. Have you tried it yet? No. No, thanks for your support. Um, no problem. Look for Rub With Love products in your local grocery store, or butcher shop, or find them online at TomDouglas.com. And PCC Community Markets. PCC, Carol wanted just, to uh, uh, yeah. do a shout-out as well. They just well. picked up the jerk, right? Not positive. Oh, yeah. I think uh, 12 of them just picked up the jerk. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah it's a good place to shop uh, okay, for Pam, your holiday produce. Tell, uh, tell everyone how we play our game about uh, the... the audience member you roped into competing today (laughs) and what the prize is uh the three participants tom terry and steven are each going to get five questions uh the person that gets the most wrong is the loser (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know we always put up a prize but the loser has to ship the prize, but is am I correct in that Stephen is going to win no matter what? Exactly. He might lose the contest, but he's going to win the prize. Exactly. Okay. Because like he's a, such a willing participant. All right. <laughs> so we like to start with Terry Rotro. I, I would just like to mention that Stephen's son left the room <laughs> for this process. Uh, I can't watch this. I think that's of what he said. To embarrass teenagers. Yes. Yeah. I think so. Where did, should we wait for Ben? Or no? Nah. Okay. He's probably looking up something important on Instagram. Probably. All right, Mr. Rotaro. Which vegetable is the next big weapon in the war against conventional meat because of its ability to create an umami sensation? You said vegetable, not a legume? Not a legume. I'm going to go with uh, eggplant. Mushrooms. 
Number two. That's a fun guy. That's not a vegetable. That's not a vegetable. It's hilarious. It's a fun guy. Okay, fine. What U.S. state drinks the most alcohol per person? I mean, California is the biggest state we have in terms of population, so I would think... But per person. Uh, Yeah, yeah, well... Uh, think, think about entertainment venues. New York, New York. No, sleazier. I would say Las Vegas. Yeah, it's which is in the state of Nevada. Nevada, yes, you get it. <laughs> but <laughs> no, no, I didn't get that. <laughs> okay. that How many pounds of milk does it take to make one pound of butter? Uh, if I had to guess, I would say four pounds of milk to one pound of butter. Twenty-one pounds. Oh, what kind of milk do you use? <laughs> Thin. Not very fatty, I can tell you that. <laughs> Number four, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, was an advertising slogan for what? Pluck, pluck, fizz, fizz. Plop, plop. <laughs> Not pluck. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> audience, 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 anybody? Alka-Seltzer. Yeah. Thank you. I'll cast zero. Yeah. Steven's so already point. taking the lead. <laughs> I'm at zero out of four. So far, I'm scoring big. What color of bell peppers has the most vitamin C? Orange, yellow, green, or red? The most vitamin C, well, green is not as ripe as red. So let me think about this. What does that mean? You're close. I'm going to go. Your thinking is correct. I'm going <laughs> to. I'm going to go red. Yay! <laughs> that could have been embarrassing. <laughs> All right, Stephen, are you ready? Hey, one out of five. That's excellent. Steve. We're really proud of you. Get, I think I you get this, that, right? I appreciate that, Jerry. Thank no you. problem. Uh, did you notice Stephen's sweatshirt? has our picture on the front. Get out of here. Show me. What? Isn't That's nice so from a few years ago. <laughs> All right, here we go. Which vegetable did U.S. President George H.W. Bush especially dislike? Uh, Brussels sprouts. No. Broccoli. Broccoli. I do not like broccoli, Bush revealed in 1990, and I haven't liked it since I was a kid, and my mother made me eat it, and I'm president of the United States, and I'm not going to eat any more broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> Direct quote. Well, it's much the same. <laughs> Back to the butter, Stephen. What is the average moisture content of a butter? Um, so, uh, can you clarify on that? That there's a fat content, right, and then there's a whey content, and then a moisture content from on the top whey. Of those two? Uh, from the whey. No way. <laughs> I give that one to him. Um, I'll guess forty percent. Sixteen to eighteen percent. Little high. The fanciest butters are about 80% fat. Thank you, Tom. Number three, what gas is used to make whipped butter? Staying in the butter theme. It's the little containers that have nitrous oxide. Yes. 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 It's made by whipping nitrogen gas into the butter. The oxygen in normal air would promote oxidation and rancidity, but nitrogen is non-reactive. One out of three. <laughs> Keep going, Steve. Number four. <laughs> Legumes are a large family of plants whose fruit is the form of a pod that contains seeds that can be eaten as vegetables. Please name a couple of legumes. Uh, haricot beans. <laughs> John, Frank. <laughs> Peanuts. <laughs> Peanuts, soybeans, lima beans, common beans, lentils, peas, carob, clover, and alfalfa. There you go. Are all legumes. Should we give him a point yes, five? Yes, absolutely. He's got that. He's got it. 
All right, this is my favorite question of the day. Uh oh. Who wore a dress made out of meat at the 2010 oh, MTV that. Video Music Awards? Well, this is right up my alley. <laughs> I just want you to know. Um, I'm going to say Lady Gaga. Of Yay! course. Yay! <laughs> Three out of five. Great job, Steve. <laughs> nice. Way to go. Mr. Douglas, is buckwheat gluten free? No. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he says, no. Buckwheat. Despite the name, buckwheat is not closely related to wheat. Buckwheat isn't even a grain. Buckwheat is a flowering plant related to leafy vegetables like rhubarb and sorrel. Who was the better cook, Ruth Bader Ginsburg or her husband, Marty? RBG. No. Marty was much more accomplished and published his recipes with the Supreme Court Historical Society under Chef Supreme. So he was a, he was a snotty cook, too. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, butter has been You know, colored. I will say that's one of my favorite things about being an author is my Library of Congress number, except it's daunting because every time I look at that page in the book, there's always, like it says, 1958, the year I was born, and then there's a hyphen, and then there's a blank. <gasps> They're just Ooh. waiting for you to die so they can finish off their uh, off your thing. Yeah. entry. Yeah, I'm just saying. Oh, I hope it's not soon. Need to sidetrack the conversation. <laughs> Butter has been colored yellow since at least the 1300s. <laughs> what flower flower was used to color it during Marigold. the Middle Ages? Yes, marigold. Are the PLU stickers on vegetables edible? Uh, I would imagine they'd probably make some that are, but the ones that are clogging up all the composting facilities and the grinders are the plastic sticky ones, and they are not. And they're a, you've got to take them off your produce. We've got to take them off the produce. It's wrecking all the grinders. It's messing up composting abilities yeah. across yeah. the country. Yeah. It's absurd. I can't well, believe they, they can't think of something. Yeah, Maybe I'll work on that yeah. instead of fake <laughs> Good meat. Good idea. <laughs> I mean, we have, we have photographic... Power now that is pretty incredible. So, uh, a, a scanner should be able to recognize an orange from it's an apple scandal. and a leak. It's a scandal. It's a scandal. Let's finish with this. Which grain is the main ingredient in craft beer? That's a gimme. <laughs> that is a gimme, but I like it. Barley. Barley. Yay. Barley. Wow. Four out of five. Tom Douglas's win there today. There we go. There we go. Stephen is our big player and winner. Thank you so much. And Steve, what did he win today? Steve, I'll be paying Harvest for the shipping trio. between the here Harvest and trio. there. All right. If you want to be part of our show like Stephen, you can join the community on Facebook or come right here and buy a ticket and hang out with us for breakfast at the Hot Stove Society radio show. You're listening to us on Cairo. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Sound and production by Sean McFadden. And our editor is Sean Nokomi Del Torre. Also, remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just go to your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a great, great weekend. Yeah, big Thanksgiving weekend. Here's to you.